like to begin our study of God's Word today by reading a section of Scripture for you and just asking you to actively listen. Then I have a couple of questions for you. Then Jesus came to them to a place called Gethsemane and said to His disciples, Sit here while I go over there and pray. And He took with Him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee and began to be grieved and distressed. Then He said to them, My soul is deeply grieved to the point of death. Remain here and keep watch with Me. And He went a little beyond them and fell on His face and prayed, saying, My Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from Me, yet not as I will, but as You will. And He came to the disciples and found them sleeping and said to Peter, So, you men could not keep watch with Me for an hour? Keep watching and praying that you may not enter into temptation. The Spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. He went away again a second time and prayed, saying, My Father, if this cannot pass away unless I drink it, Your will be done. Again He came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were heavy. And He left them again and went away and prayed a third time, saying the same thing once more. Then He came to the disciples and said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? Behold, the hour is at hand, and the Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of sinners. Get up, let us be going. Behold, the one who betrays me is at hand. Hope you are all actively listening. I think there are two ways to hear God's Word. Two ways to hear a passage like that. When you heard the passage, did you hear an emphasis on the need to pray vigilantly when facing trials and how the disciples needed to do a better job than they did. Was that the emphasis that you heard when you heard those words? Or, when you heard those words, did you hear the emphasis above all other things being placed upon Jesus? Jesus and how His love for His Father and His love for His disciples, for sinners, moved Him to grief, moved Him to submit to the will of His Father, as difficult as that was. How did you hear it? What was the emphasis? I believe very strongly that the way you hear God's Word, the way you read God's Word, is one of the most telling things about you. As you heard God's Word being read, did you read the disciples, or may I even say yourself, as the one having the lead role in the drama? Or did you read and hear God's Word and did you hear and see Jesus as the one holding the lead role in the drama? I remind you, I remind you after reading all kinds of things about this, pointing to the key is the disciples needed to try harder and they weren't faithful enough. And you know, therefore, we all need to realize that the key of the passage is we all need to be more faithful and more vigilant in our prayer lives. I remind you that it is the gospel of Jesus Christ 
the good news of Jesus Christ, according to Matthew. It is not the ah gospel, the anti-gospel of disciples' unfaithfulness along with our unfaithfulness, and we need to try harder. That's an ah gospel. That is an anti-gospel. So, with that in mind, we're going to reread the passage. And we're going to reread the passage slowly. We're going to study the passage. And what I'm going to seek to do by the grace of God is to have you see that it is about Jesus. Yes, the disciples weren't faithful. Yes, we need to be faithful. That's all true. But ultimately, this is the gospel of Jesus Christ and He is the lead. He, he is the lead character in the whole thing. It's all about Him. And what we should be seeing when we leave here today is not a big guilt trip about how we all need to try harder. That may be true. What we should see and what we should have, have locked in our minds today when we leave is we should see that Jesus Christ loved His Father amazingly so. Even to this point. And we should see that Jesus Christ loved those faithless disciples and He loves sinners like them and like us amazingly so that He would be willing to do what He is doing here even in the Garden of Gethsemane. I am hoping and praying that you leave impressed with Christ. I'm hoping and praying, even pastorally, if I could put my pastor's hat on, that I I hope you leave even motivated to read the Gospels that way. Because that's how they're meant to be read. That's why they're called Gospels. So this morning we'll look at Matthew 26, verses 36 to 46. We're studying the Gospel according to Matthew as a church, and this is the section we're in. And as we look at these verses, 36 to 46, we see there are three different scenes. Three different scenes that all emphasize Christ's love for His Father, Christ's love for sinners by implication. But all three scenes essentially say the exact same thing. Which should cause us, as we look at each of the three, to say, this is a big point. This is amazing. But what we can do is look at the first one and invest 95% of our time there. And then we'll go rather quickly on the other ones. So what we're doing is seeking to be impressed with Christ. He is... The good news, it's all about Him. The first garden scene drawing attention to our love of Christ, we see in 36 to 40. Let's go ahead and and look at that again now. Verse 36, it says, Then, we know the then is uh, after the Passover meal, it's late at night, therefore. The then also would indicate, based upon the verses right before, then after the disciples boasted of their, 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 their perseverance and their commitment to Christ no matter what. Then... Then Jesus came with them to a place called Gethsemane and said to his disciples, Sit here while I go over there and pray. John 18.1 tells us it's a garden. That's why we call it the Garden of Gethsemane. We would also learn from John's account. This is a place where Jesus had spent time in the past with his disciples. This is a place where they could get away and they could spend time together. This is a place in this context where they're going to give themselves to praying into solitude. Jesus in particular. Gethsemane means oil press, so it's an olive orchard, presumably so. And Jesus is getting away. Look at verse 37 then with me, and you will see and hear these words. And He took with Him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, that would be James and John, according to Mark 14. 
And then it says, and began to be grieved and distressed. And I'll apologize, because I know that I couldn't read those words with the kind of weightiness that they would need to carry. I'll apologize because I know I really can't, in light of the big picture here, give you really the emphasis that they need to feel and the the weightiness that the words will have. But they become significant, so I'll give it a shot. Grieved, sometimes translated sorrowful or filled with anguish. It's even a word that's used for hurt, for physical pain or injury. Someone even suggested that the word could be translated very depressed. So it's a heavy, weighted, difficult word. He is grieved and it is grieved with, a, with, a, with, a, with an intensity, Jesus is. Distressed or troubled is the next word that goes along with it. And no doubt they're complementing one another. It's this severely distressed idea and it is heavy, it is burdensome, it is weighty. I'm giving you as many synonyms as I can come up with. You get the idea. This is, this is not ordinary. This is out of the ordinary. Mark's account even gives us another word that is used. It's translated in the New American Standard Bible, very distressed. So there's a, a third description really all emphasizing the same thing. But interestingly enough, the Greek word that's used there in Mark's account is sometimes translated overwhelmed. I like getting another synonym. In the King James Version, uh, the, the word is translated in Mark 16.6, affrighted. How many of you have ever said the word affrighted? I did, first service, so I can raise my hand. Obviously, the meaning is frightened, scared. This is, this is an intense moment. How about this? This is something we have not seen Jesus experience ever before in the Gospel account. As severe as His temptation was, and we certainly see that as severe. This is out of the ordinary. It's extraordinary. This is something we haven't seen before. We haven't witnessed before. And it is severe. He is overwhelmed. He is distraught. He is distressed. He is disturbed. He is depressed. All of this is far, what I would, the way I would put it, as far as this could possibly be the case without crossing the line and sinning in your state of mind. So have that locked in your mind. And now look at verse 38, if you would, in your Bibles. Then he said to them, my soul, my, my innermost being, the very, the very core of who I am, my, my soul is deeply grieved, extremely grieved, and so he's, he's driving it all home. And I think words can't express what he's talking about. Because he goes on to say then, if you see in verse 38, to the point of death. What is that? I, I don't know. I mean, this is so bad, he's saying, this is to the point of death. I don't think he's getting at, it's so bad, I wish I were dead. You might say that, I might say that, that's not the idea, that's not even what it says. This is so intense, and so burdensome, and so significant, and so weighty, and so severe, it is to the point of death, he says. And again, I wish I would have taken drama lessons or acting or something when I was growing up so I could do a better job trying to convey the idea. What in the world, the question is begged, 
What in the world could, could, could be so bad? What is calling for, for such a severity? I mean, think about the, the... And maybe I don't even want to do this to you, but I'm going to because I did it to myself. I mean, think about the most distressing things that have ever happened in your life. And for some of you, it's not that bad. But you think it's bad? And some of you, it's very bad. And you think it's bad. You think about the most tumultuous, difficult, complex, weighty, depressing time that you have ever gone through that that just is something you feel at the very core of your being. And you know what I'll say. I'll say, obviously, it doesn't compare with what's happening here, especially in light of where we're going to see it go. This is intense, severe. So it begs the question, what? What is it? Well, we'll see in a moment, but before we see, let's see Jesus offering an invitation to His disciples. Look at verse 38 there toward the end where it says, Remain here and keep watch with Me. That even adds an exclamation point to how severe it is. Alright, what I want is for you to be with Me. Obviously, you're not going to be doing what I'm doing and you won't go through what I'm going through exactly. But if there's ever a time for friendship, this is the time. That's why I've got you here. He's calling upon them to fellowship with Him. He's calling them to be friends as friends can only give any degree of comfort. They can pray. They can be there. Then it says in verse 39, And he went a little beyond them and fell on his face and prayed. And I've got great commentary on that statement. The best commentary in the whole world comes from the Bible itself. As you look at verse 39, listen to what Luke's account says. Luke 22:44. And being in agony... He was praying very fervently and his sweat became like drops of blood falling down upon the ground. So he's praying and he's there and he's praying fervently and he's praying so fervently that that his sweat becomes like drops of blood. And this is this intense, passionate, significant time where he is more troubled and more disturbed and more bothered than he's ever been ever that we've ever seen in the pages of Scripture. And again, we say, why? And the answer is there. Look in your Bible. You'll see it in verse 39. Saying, My Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from Me. Yet not as I will, but as You will. That's the why. Why the agony? Why the distress? Why the pain? In two words. Did you see the two words? Right there in verse 39. This cup. Jesus is not feeling this agony because Judas betrayed Him as bad as that was. Jesus is not feeling this agony because His disciples will prove themselves to be faithless as bad as that will be. Jesus is not in agony like this because He will be betrayed, because He will be delivered over, because He will be justly condemned, and because He will die a horrible death physically. 
Jesus is in agony here at this point in time. He tells us why this cup. And it doesn't take very much looking to find out what he means when you look to the Old Testament. This cup. The cup? Symbolic of God's dumping out of His, some of you know, His wrath. Jesus isn't afraid of being killed. Jesus isn't afraid of being betrayed. Jesus isn't afraid of any of those things as bad as they are. Jesus is there in this intense agony like we've never seen before because He, like no one else, knows that He is going to experience the cup, the cup of God's wrath. The undiluted, unrestrained, full, intense wrath of a righteous, perfect, holy God. Psalm 75, verse 7. God is the judge who puts down one and exalts another. Listen to this. For a cup is in the hand of the Lord and wine foams. It is well mixed. He pours out of this. It's, 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 it's the wrath of God. Isaiah 51, 22 says, The chalice of God's anger. It's wrath. Jeremiah 25:15 For thus the Lord the God of Israel says to me take this cup of the wine of wrath from my hand. I don't think that's a messianic passage but you get the idea when you talk about the cup when Jesus is dreading this cup he's dreading the wrath of God. And you say now I understand Now I understand why this is so unique and so extraordinary and why Jesus is so distraught. And as well as you can understand the wrath of God, some of you have walked with God a long time and you know what God says about Himself and you you understand the wrath of God to to a great degree. Think about how well Jesus, the Son, understands the wrath of God. He knows. It's no wonder he's distraught. The consuming wrath of God Almighty who has all the power at his fingertips. The God who speaks and things are made. If he is going to pour out his just wrath on his son, it will be the most severe thing to ever, ever, ever happen. If you need to draw the specific connection, and I would do it in my Bible if I haven't already, I don't know, but I would write it down in the margin. The connection is between Matthew 26 and 27. Matthew 27, verse 46, where Jesus says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Right? That's the cup. Jesus is looking anticipating, knowing what's coming. And he's looking at the wrath of his Father. I don't know about you, but this is gripping for me. This is intense stuff. It's ghastly. And Jesus is dreading it. The furious wrath of God. 
we're not going to take the time to, to do this, but, but you, uh, I, should, I should let you know that, that the New Testament goes on to say a lot about this. How this, this great God can have His Son go and die a sinner's death so He can judge His Son because His Son is dying on behalf of sinners in place of sinners so that we then can be in a right relationship with God. Talks about it all over the place. I mean, this is the central emphasis of the New Testament. First Peter 3.18, it says, It'll be the just, or it was the just, Christ, for the unjust. God is judging His Son as if He committed all of the sins that I ever committed. Romans chapter 3, verse 25 is rather interesting in this. Whom God displayed publicly. God displays His Son publicly for all to see. He's executing His Son uh, uh, for all to see. And then it goes on to say in Romans 3.25, as a propitiation, as a satisfaction. That is, He's satisfying the just requirements, the just wrath of God in His blood. And it happens through faith. But then interestingly enough, it says, one of the reasons why God does this This was to demonstrate, this was to put on display His righteousness. The cross of Christ says a lot of different things. It says a lot about love from God. It says a lot about grace from God and mercy from God. But it absolutely says God is righteous. For God to let me pat the sinner into heaven and be righteous demands that there is a cross. So when I look at the cross, I can say, I know something. I know something splendid. I know something severe about the righteousness of God. Jesus is looking toward the cross and what will happen there and He knows it will be a demonstration of the righteousness of God as God righteously executes Him as a substitute for us. Isn't that amazing? Heavy stuff. 2 Corinthians 5.21 talks about this. Romans 4.25, Romans 8.3, Galatians 3.13. And then, not only that, what's amazing about the cross is we look at other passages and Jesus is there experiencing the wrath of the Father and He is dreading it, but as He is there, He is not a sinner. He's sinless. Bearing our sins, the just for the unjust. 1 John 3.5, 1 Peter 2.22, Hebrews 4.15, bearing God's judgment even though He didn't deserve any of it. Let me ask you, have you, ever, have you ever thought about the cross along these lines? I'm going to encourage you to. Here's how I think about it, at least on one level. Jesus goes to the cross for me in my place, and I deserve not just to go there. No, I deserve to experience the just wrath of God for how long? For an eternity in hell. Forever and ever is the biblical terminology. Jesus talked about it. His disciples talked about it. So I should be, Pat Avendroth, and this would include you as well, I should be going to hell forever, experiencing the undiluted, unmixed wrath of God forever, 
and it would be right and just and fair, and the angels and the redeemed would praise God forever for doing it because it's right, because I'm a sinner and I've offended a holy God. And yet, what blows my mind is by Jesus dying on the cross and experiencing the cup, He compressed in that short period of time, and short seems to be uh, trivializing it, I don't mean to, but in that relatively short period of time, compressed an eternity of what would be hell for Pat Avendroth. And for you, and for everyone who would ever believe. So it's not just for one. Are you impressed with Jesus? I'm so impressed. It is no wonder that Jesus is saying to His Father under all of the the, the stress and all of the burden, take it away! Take the cup away! Because nothing could be more severe. By the way, please don't Think of Jesus going to the cross and what Jesus is feeling as far as anguish here. Please don't think and don't conclude that He's afraid to be a martyr. Don't think, and I'm not trying to downplay martyrs. I'm not trying to to take away from the Tyndales of the world and, and I'm thankful that there have been those who have followed Christ and they have been martyred for the cause of Christ. I'm thankful for those things, but please don't be so short-sighted as to conclude that Jesus is so troubled and so bent out of shape, if you will, because He's going to be killed. Because He's going... He's been betrayed. Because He's going to be delivered over. Because He's going to be executed. Because He's going to be a martyr. You say, why are you saying that, Pat? Because martyr after martyr after martyr after martyr after martyr, countless martyrs, even today somewhere, people are being put to death, executed for the cause of Christ, and they are going, many of them, what? Without a word. Silent or preaching the truth about Christ. Jesus wasn't afraid and wasn't begging with God because He didn't want to be martyred. He had far too much self-control for that. I mean, He he had far too much uh, character for that. We know that's the case. Arguing from the lesser to the greater. All these people have have gone to to their martyrdom and they've gone valiantly, quietly, faithfully. But none of them, none of them have gone knowing that they are facing the cup, the cup of God's undiluted wrath. So he is far more than a martyr. And thus we see why he's doing what he's doing. 
Furthermore, giving us even more emphasis, back to verse 39, more emphasis about how severe this is. Toward the very end there, I know we already read it, but even, even driving it home even more for severity's sake in verse 39, yet not as I will, but as you will. Question. Did Jesus know that it was God's will for Him to go to the cross and experience God's wrath? Absolutely He knew. Did Jesus know? Do we know Jesus well enough to know that Jesus knew what God's will was? The answer is absolutely He knew. In fact, on a whole other level, we would say it was Jesus' will to go to the cross. We know that it was. We know this because of Old Testament prophecy. Like Isaiah 53, 5, He was crushed for our iniquities. We know this because of, of texts like Acts 2. Listen to Acts 2.23. This man, Christ, delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God. It was predestined to happen. And Jesus knew that. And then we read through Matthew. In Matthew's account, we've been seeing it all over the place that Jesus is the one who's been saying, this is what's going to happen. Matthew 16, 21, Matthew 17, 22 to 23, Matthew 20, 18 to 19, Matthew 26, 12, Matthew 20, 28. Even back to the very beginning, the very reason Jesus came to earth, Matthew 1, 21, He came to save His people from their what? From their sins. We know that Jesus knew why He was here. And we know that Jesus knew, even as He was praying with the, to the Father, God, take away this cup, but, 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 but Your will, not my will. Well, certainly He knew, and it was His will to go. It just underscores, it just adds the exclamation point to the severity of the cup. On a certain level, it is the last thing in the world He would ever want because He is a real person. And he really and truly, not fictitiously, sleight of hand, is going to feel the wrath of God. It's the real deal. And so it just causes us to say, oh man, this is amazing. It's because of the cup. That's why he says what he says. Are you impressed with Jesus? I'm so impressed. I am so impressed with His love for His Father and His love for sinners like you and like me. I am so impressed. More impressed than ever. That's why it's so good to do a little digging now and then and not just, you know, do sermonettes for Christianettes. You know, bring your raisinettes. Ha, 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 ha. We'll just make it lighthearted and it's some kind of amusement or entertainment. (sighs) To do a little digging and to say, you know, Lord... I've had a Bible for a long time and I've read this before and I thought it was pretty, pretty amazing. Boy, you just locked me up in a room for some time and allow me to study and, and allow me to listen even to a sermon that, that scratches a little bit past the surface. And I say, I'm more impressed with Jesus Christ than ever. He's amazing. His love for me is this kind of love. His love for the Father is this kind of love. Ah, you can have your sermonettes. That's not life-changing stuff. This is life-changing for me. Well, with great sarcasm, let me say that what we're going to see next is, in light of how severe it is, in light of the epic moment, obviously, the disciples He asked to come with Him, who had been with Him throughout these last three years, they're right there with Him. Verse 40, And He 
the one who was absolutely devastated, praying about what awaited him. And he came to the disciples who just recently in the same chapter said, we'll, we'll die with you, Jesus. We'll be there for you no matter what. They even argued with him and found them sleeping and said to Peter, and by the way, it's in the plural. Peter's the spokesman. He's speaking to all of them. You men could not keep watch with me for one hour. It's the ultra trivial, right? The ultra profound to the ultra trivial. Verse 41, keeping, keep watching, he says, and praying that you may not enter into temptation. This is a serious time. It's a severe time. And it's going to be more severe for you even when I'm gone. And then he says, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. That's why you need to pray. He doesn't give that as an excuse. He gives that as a warning. We need to not use that as an excuse. You know, the, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Ha, ha, ha. That's why I don't do the right thing. Stop using that out of context. Jesus is saying, you better be praying. This is serious because the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. This is a really, really sad commentary, isn't it? Upon the, about the strength of the, of the human spirit. We're seeing the strength of the human spirit. And it ain't too good. I was saying that for effect, kids. Ain't. I know. Okay, now what we're going to see are two more scenes and... The second and third scene emphasize the same thing. But since they emphasize the same thing, they emphasize it more and more. And we're to see that, that, that Christ's love is, is, is huge, even bigger than we already think it is for His love and for sinners like us. So let's keep going. Second scene in the garden that should impress us with Christ and His love for His Father and for sinners in verse 42. He went again a second time and prayed saying, My Father, if this cannot pass away unless I drink it, Your will be done. And we know that He knows the answer to the plea already, but that's how severe it is. And then verse 43, Again He came and found them sleeping for their eyes were heavy. Then we see the third Scene emphasizing the same thing. Verse 44, And he left them again and went away and prayed a third time, saying the same thing once more. Then verse 45. Oh, by the way, what what is he saying? God, take it away! But not my will, your will. Then 45. Then he came to the disciples and said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? Behold, the hour is at hand, and the Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of sinners. And if you have a King James Version of the Bible, your Bible does a better, your English translation does a better job translating that here than the rest of our translations. Literally, verse 45 is not a question. Literally, verse 45 is a command, strangely enough. It's an imperative. It, <laughs> this is str- it's strange at first. It, it, it's a present active imperative. He, he, here's what the King James, how it translates it, and, and rightfully so. Sleep on now and take your rest. Sleep and keep sleeping. He said, 
The very thing Jesus doesn't want them to be doing, and we've already seen it twice, is he doesn't want them to be sleeping. And now he does the same thing, but it's not the same thing because he says, present tense imperative, you sleep and keep sleeping. You say, what in the world? I greased the skids earlier by using it myself. It's called sarcasm. It's the last thing in the world Jesus wants them to be doing. And he says, just keep sleeping. And you can just feel the dagger, emotionally speaking, that you would feel if you were the disciples. One of the most intense, in a sense, devastating things that I do at times is use sarcasm. And Jesus is using something very intense here and he's saying, yeah, just just go keep sleeping. He doesn't really want them to keep sleeping. Even in the King James translation, he goes on to say, Behold, the hour is at hand and the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners, which in effect is the same thing ours is saying in verse 46, where he goes on to say, or we should go into the next verse, Get up! Let us be going. Behold, the one who betrays me is at hand. Perhaps even seeing the torches in the night, which he would have been able to see because we know what's happening next. It's time. It's not time for sleeping. It's time for for me to go. And I'm now one more step closer to the cup. It is an absolute tragedy. Bordering on blasphemy, in my opinion, which doesn't mean much, but I've got the microphone for now. It is an absolute tragedy bordering on blasphemy that we would read a passage like this and think somehow the point is those disciples needed to do a better job Let's take away from this, you know, let's really work harder at being more fervent in our lives. Should we be more fervent? Yes. Can you learn that from this passage? I think so. I think that would be a good thing. It's the gospel of Jesus Christ, according to Matthew. It is the good news. This is not the bad news of unfaithful disciples. It is the good news of Jesus Christ that He took the cup. If the disciples did the right thing all of the time, just like if you did the right thing all of the time, He wouldn't have to take the cup. And therefore, Christianity makes no sense. So, so perhaps sometimes we need to repent of trying so hard to make everything so immediately applicable that we just take Jesus out of the equation. I'll take one sermon that exalts Christ and tells me the good news about Jesus Christ before I take a thousand well-crafted, witty, homiletical ditties that tell me how I can live a practical Christian life. It's about Him. It's all about Him.
This is not about how we all have our Gethsemanes. Oh, if I had more hair, I'd pull it out. It is not about that. We all do have our trials and difficulties, but we don't all have our Gethsemanes. None of us have ever had a Gethsemane. Oh, I want you so badly to be able to get that. I want to get that for my own life. I want to read the Bible that way. I want you to read the Bible that way. So that Jesus Christ gets the glory and the honor and the praise that is so rightfully His. The Bible is not a book of morals. It's not the book of Christian virtues. It's the book of human failures and Jesus succeeding. Now again, that doesn't mean we're not supposed to do certain things. That doesn't mean we're not supposed to live virtuous lives. But that comes after, after the cross. A thoughtful Christian many years ago said this, and then we'll end, about this passage. It was alone the Savior prayed in dark Gethsemane. Alone He drained the bitter cup and suffered there for me. Alone, alone He bore it all. Alone He gave Himself to save His own. He suffered, bled, and died alone, alone. And we are all so thankful. Let's pray. Father, thank You for this morning and the opportunity we have had to to be impressed once again with Jesus Christ, the man of sorrows who was acquainted with grief, as the prophet said. And it was for us. He took the cup for us. And Lord, in light of the fact that we celebrated communion this morning, it's interesting that Christ bore the cup of Your wrath so that we can take the cup of communion and celebrate the fact that He took the cup of wrath. How great is that, Lord? How great are You to be such a magnificent, amazing God to do this for us. May we live for the glory of the King who has done this for us. In His name we pray. Amen.